Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our memory isn't as good as we think it is sometimes. Plus, computers are starting to read our minds. Well, not exactly computers reading our mind, but at least trying to be more empathetic and understanding of our interest or how we go about things when we use them. Plus, we also tackle about the vagueness of human memory and how things can be misplaced in their context and what the effect can be on our remembering of historical facts. Around the world, it seems like we're just entering election season. Canada just had their elections recently. There's talk in Australia about potentially an election soon. And the United States is in the midst of a long-fought battle to nominate to be even fight the general election in November. And with all these elections going around, it can be very difficult to actually remember who's running, from where, and for what. In fact, with all the names floating around in all the headlines, it can be quite confusing. Of course, you remember the big names like Trump and Clinton, but outside of that, you can quite easily forget who else was in the race, or the also-rans, another way of putting it. And that problem with human memory and remembering who was actually associated with what extends far beyond just, you know, the nomination race in the immediate term. Some researchers from Washington University in St. Louis have been studying a phenomenon that relates to our knowledge and memory of who actually was president in the United States or his other historical figures since 1973. And in fact, what they found is that our memories aren't as good as we think they are. So Henry Rodiger, a human memory expert at Washington University, He's in fact uh, the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor in Arts and Sciences, has been studying undergraduates' abilities to remember the names of presidents since 1973. Basically, he administers a test, and has been doing so since then, to all psychology undergraduates and graduates at Yale University as well as several other universities. And when he's done that, what he's actually then tracked over time is people's ability to remember and name correctly presidents of the United States. In 2014, Rodiger published a paper in the journal Science which suggested that we do pretty well at naming the first couple of presidents and the last couple of presidents. And this also can be repeated if you look at, say, even anecdotally, our experience of Australian history. I can name the first couple of prime ministers of Australia and definitely the last couple. Um, but it gets really hazy in the middle, and this is pretty much what happens to most Americans. And the, the recallability falls off really quickly, with fewer than 20% able to remember more than the last eight or nine presidents in order. And I would be really struggling to remember the last eight or nine prime ministers, even though we've had the advantage of chopping and changing in Australia. Now, he's published a new paper in 2016 uh, in the journal Psychology Science, co-authored with Andrew DeSoto. And what they did is built on these studies over the past 40 years about just general memory of presidents and other historical facts and test it now. So that what they used is Mechanical Turk, and we've talked about Mechanical Turk a few times on this podcast before, but effectively it is a fantastic research tool, amongst other things. It's basically a place hosted by Amazon where you can set a price point, maybe a couple of cents, maybe uh, 20 cents a dollar for a repetitive do- for a repetitive task, and then people go and undertake said task, and complete it and get their reward. And these can be everything from sorting a bunch of random objects on a screen to doing a uh, a capture puzzle or filling out a survey. 
And researchers love using this because it means they can get a really high sample size relatively cheaply and very quickly without having to go through an expensive study process. And for this kind of test, Mechanical Turk is perfect because there's not really that much concerns about who or what is doing it, not like you're trying to go after a specific type of audience or type of person with a certain type of condition. So they tested 326 people via Mechanical Turk. And what they were asked was to ask to identify past presidents when presented with a list of names. Now, that list included actual presidential names, JFK, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Reagan, all those kind of names that you're probably familiar with. But thrown amongst that list were names that you probably recognize, but aren't actual presidents, such as Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, amongst others. And they even threw in some wild cards, like names that would be familiar to anyone from US history or US or historical studies, but weren't actually American or related to the presidency at all, such as Thomas More. And then with each name, they were asked to confirm whether or not it was a president or a non-president. And on a scale of zero to one, how certain they were, with zero being not at all, and a hundred being absolutely certain this person was a president. Now... The rate for correctly recognizing the names of the past presidents was about 88%. That's well above sort of average, uh, but it's not perfect. Now, some obscure presidents, such as Franklin Pierce and Chester Arthur, were recognized less than 60% of the time. And amongst all of these, Alexander Hamilton was frequently identified as a president. More so than many actual presidents. And when they people selected that he was a president, they were really confident, like 83%, which is almost as high as the overall <laughs> average for correctly naming actual presidents, which is quite funny. And in the United States, obviously, he's quite a, a well-known figure. Uh, he appears on the $10 bill, and he also has a fantastic musical about him going on right now. Uh, other people who were recognized as being a president when they weren't were uh, other figures from U.S. history that are semi-known, such as Hubert Humphrey and John Calhoun. Now, nearly a third of those surveys recognize the name Thomas More as someone who was once a president. Now, clearly, Thomas More is just a general Anglo-Saxon name, but people often got confused with Sir Thomas More, the legendary author, philosophical figure, and counsellor to King Henry VIII in England, which probably they researchers believe that names false familiarity and false recognition so they knew the name but didn't know where to place it with and figured ah it's probably a president and people like benjamin franklin obviously hugely involved in the independence movement uh, of the united states and very very involved in the political scene uh, in american history and a name that comes up again and again but never actually was president in fact he served as an ambassador to France for most of the time and, you know, was heavily involved in the diplomatic scene and the constitutional scene, but never actually the presidency. But you would be inclined to believe quite easily, if you're just vaguely looking at names, that he may have been president. Similarly, names that are on the, on the borderlines, like Humphrey and Calhoun, were both political figures, either in Congress or the vice presidency for a long period of time, but never actually president. Probably the equivalent would be Dick Cheney now, naming him probably in 20 or 30 years' time. They also included some things in there that, you know, would really test it. So what they're actually trying to understand is if it's the name was familiar and then in presented with a list of a context of other names, it sort of gets grouped together. And that's uh, that's what Rodiger and DeSoto's thesis idea is about. 
that effectively our ability to recognize the names of famous people hinges on the names appearing in some kind of context that's related to their fame. You know, they threw an Elvis Presley, but everyone knew that he wasn't a president, so that was okay, because it was a different context. And what they find quite interesting about this is that it's very consistent. So the memory issue that they see here is actually very, very consistent across generations, laboratories, universities, online studies, in-person studies, or different types of tests. There are clear patterns about how they're remembered and they're forgotten. So one of the things that's important from this study is that false recognition is, is quite easily something that can happen in the brain. If you present a name that is familiar in a, in a similar context, you can actually end up with a false recognition. Much in the same way as that you probably misassociate something just because it's in a kind of confusing context. And even then, and that happens, you can be really, really certain on it, even though that's very actually factually incorrect. And it shows the way that human memory can be guided or influenced by the context of what you're trying to actually mem remember something from. So the knowledge of US history here is one sort of narrow definition of it, but it has a wider a wider impact on it and the way that we remember things, particularly lists or famous things. It's quite important that we recall the full context, the correct context, which can actually help us learn in the future. By trying to identify things in the right context and know when things are out of place, it can help our memory. But it is also kind of reassuring, at the same time kind of alarming, that even the most famous people with great contributions to their country can be forgotten or at least misattributed in 50 to 75 years. So if you're willing to play the long game, you just may win over the populace eventually. Many of us spend an inordinate amount of time looking at a screen, on our phone, on our tablet, on our computers, browsing, hopefully browsing to soundcloud.com forward slash the grain point to listen to this podcast, amongst other things. But when we're just idly scrolling through our Tumblr dash, our Facebook feed, our Twitter stream, we actually are undertaking a whole bunch of different behaviours at the same time. And if you look at those behaviours, you're actually able to identify whether or not a person is bored or interested with what they're seeing on the screen. Now, with humans, we understand this. It's our ability to read body language. We you know, understand that this is quite important. It's how a lot of our social nuance and understanding works, the ability to understand and take social cues and hints from the person we're interacting with. And that's relatively understood science, or at least we have a vague understanding of what happens there and heuristic rules of thumbs to follow. But applying that to a mechanised form or an automated format is quite difficult. But Dr Harry Witchell, a discipline leader in physiology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, has helped to develop a computer algorithm to actually help computers read a person's body language, to tell if they're bored or interested with what they see on screen. So, if you follow Dr Witchell's process. Your computer will actually be able to tell when you're scrolling idly through Tumblr that you are in fact bored and maybe do something about it. All of this is based around a person's movements. So even when we're watching TV or undertaking any type of listening to a lecture in class or undertaking any type of activity, no matter what we're doing, and that applies to using a computer, you can monitor their level of interest by monitoring whether or not there are 
tiny movements uh, that people usually constantly exhibit it. And we call these tiny movements non-instrumental movements. Now, if someone is 100% absorbed, really enraptured, which Dr. Witchell calls rapt engagement, that level of involuntary non-instrumental movements really drops down. If you're really absorbed in what you're doing, you're not fidgeting or undergoing these tiny little twitches and movements. So how exactly did they assess this? Well, Dr. Witchell's team basically undertook with 27 participants a range of three-minute tasks. And these tasks involve some stimuli from a variety of different types and sources, including fascinating games to tedious readings from European Union banking regulation, which of course would have been fascinating for all involved. And they were done they undertook these tasks while using a handheld trackball, uh, so to try and minimize instrumental movement, such as moving the mouse. So then they were basically studied using video monitoring tracking technology to basically assess whether or not in two different comparable tasks, they are more engaged and assess this using the actual movements that were picked up. So undertaking two similar reading tasks, the one with more engaging reading material resulted in significant reduction of non-instrumental movement, about 42%, which is quite interesting uh, when you think about it. But it's it's sort of lining up with quantifying a common sense thing. If, if you're not really engaged in what's going on, you may have a tendency to undertake unnecessary non-instrumental movements simply because you're bored. So in this instance, it's more about actually coming up with a method to detect these quite interestingly. Now, Dr. Witchell's point about all of this is it's it's quite useful to be able to read a person's interest in a computer program, and it actually could bring benefits to future digital learning and the way in which learning is delivered. So a lot of people use sources such as Khan Academy, Coursera, Udacity um, as online learning platforms where they can learn uh, a variety of new interesting topics, skills, and techniques. And if when using these programs, it, the program itself could actually respond to you what you find interesting and not interesting. It actually helped improve the learning process and that could apply to classroom teaching or any other type of automated teaching programs or educational apps that we have, which is a little bit scary to think that the app itself is watching you, but if you've got the camera there on your tablet, why not use it? And this could lead to a further more empathetic apps, programs, educational websites, or even robots that could help us learn by actually making sure and getting feedback on us much in the same way that a real life teacher would adjust their process what they're saying how they're delivering it based on what the audience is saying i mean even you could apply this to things like news websites games and movies in a more detailed format and that's often what they do in screening tests of games or movies and so on at the moment but this would just be adding an extra level of feedback or interaction depending on how you see it so maybe at one point in the future, when you're just aimlessly refreshing Twitter or scrolling down ultimately through Tumblr till you try and hit the end, or just hitting random page on Wikipedia, your computer may be able to tell and sort of say, hey, maybe look at something else or give you another option, if it can just base this on its your movements as well, and which might lead to a more empathetic and symbiotic, useful relationship for us and our machines that we use in our everyday life. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Human memory can be clouded by presenting facts or names in the wrong context. 
Plus, computers will be able to read our boredom by looking for involuntary movements or the lack thereof to measure our engagement. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the young scientists of Australia.